Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking beginning in John 17, and God willing, look at the passage beginning with verse 6 through verse 19 of John 17. Samuel was the last judge in the history of Israel. Now don't confuse him with other judges who may have decided cases which was brought before people of authority in Israel. There were many who served as judges. An entire book in our Bible is devoted to telling their story. Samuel's story, however, is told by himself, in effect, and others who associated with him in what we know as First Samuel. You may remember that his birth was extraordinary. Every birth, quite frankly, as I thought about that, is extraordinary. Every conception and every baby that is born in this world, it's a miracle, isn't it? Well, it so happened that his mother, Hannah, was one of two wives. Elkanah was the husband of Penina and Hannah. And Hannah, and Hannah really was his first choice, evidently, because when you read about that family, her name comes first. There was a big difference, however, in her life and in the family's life because Penina had a kid every time you turned around almost, and Hannah was barren, and she was grieved by that. She wanted to be a mother. Every year, she would go with her husband and her counterpart, Penina, to Shiloh, where the tabernacle of the Lord rested in where Eli the high priest would come before the Lord on Yom Kippur to pray for the sins of Israel from the previous year. Well, they came for a festival there. And Eli happened to overhear Hannah weeping and carrying on. And the fact that she was in such a state of hysteria led him to believe that she was drunk. And he accused her of that, and she said, no, 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 sir. My concern is I'm barren, and I'm praying to the Lord to open my womb so that I can bear a child. Well, you know the rest of the story. God heard her prayer, and she gave birth to Samuel. She had promised God that he would be a Nazarite, his hair would never be cut, and he would be under that vow for the rest of his life. But also, she was praying that this child would be one who would bring glory and honor to the Lord. And so she was going to give him, as soon as she weaned him, she was going to give him to the Lord. And she did just that. We don't know exactly how young he was when he was passed off by his mother, to Eli, a 98-year-old man taking care of a boy who would probably be four or five years old or maybe a little older. But you know how God used that man 
Samuel, there came a time, it was actually the 40th year of his service as a judge. He began his place of leading the nation at the age of 19. At the age of 59, he passed away. But prior to his going away to be with the Lord, what happened was that God told him to tell the people, I'm going to give you a king. Now the backdrop of that story, of course, is that the people had been insistent on God's giving them a king. And this was an affront to God, and by association, it was an affront to Samuel, because he had poured his life out for these people. And he made a remarkable statement to them when he finally turned the reins over of leadership. He makes the statement found in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23 and following. He says, as for me, far be it from me that I will, would cease to pray for you. And he went on praying for them. Now that's a big man, isn't it? Who will pray for people who have rejected him. It'd be a good thing for any of us to consider. Have we stopped praying for people? simply because they have quit looking to us as a person who can enter in with them in the development of their life in Christ? Well, this is true for you and me. We are under orders to pray for each other. And we know this from the book of James chapter 5. The Bible says, keep on praying for one another. Our ministry to others is a ministry of intercessory prayer. There's another fellow in the Bible, much less well-known, I'm sure, than Samuel. He's in the Old Testament. This man's name shows up in the book of Colossians in one verse. His name was Epaphras. And Paul pays him a high compliment. He says, this man is a man who labors diligently in prayer for you. One of the translations says that he wrestles with all he has to pray for you. Intercessory prayer is indeed a wrestling match because the last thing Satan wants for you to do or for me to do is to pray for one another. In Epaphras' prayer for the Colossian church, was that they would have clear insight in all of the will of God and that they would stand perfect. This is the way the New American Standard translates it, and that's a bit misleading. The word translated perfect really means persons who are mature, that they might become mature and then do all the will of God. William Gladstone, some of you know the name, he was a great statesman in the history of England, and he made this statement, the world's greatest curse is man's selfishness. Robert Browning, you know that name as a poet of great stature, he said, man seeks his own good at the whole world's cost. We tend to be, as believers, selfish in our praying. But when we read what we're going to study today, the prayer of Jesus, scholars have said 
what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, we had it read today, it's really the disciples' prayer is a better way of describing what we find in the book of Matthew. Also, another variation of it in the book of Luke, that's the disciples' prayer. They wanted Christ to teach them how to pray. Well, we need the Lord to teach us how to pray for one another. Inherent in what we call the Lord's Prayer is intercession. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our transgressions. Lead us not into temptation. You notice the use of the plural pronoun over and over and over again? To the astute observer, when you think of that prayer, you know inherent in the Lord's prayer as we call it, the disciples' prayer, a better way of describing it, is intercessory prayer. But in the Lord's prayer, the real Lord's prayer, we could call it, and I'm not stuttering here, we could call it the Lord's Lord's prayer in 17 because it's his prayer to the Father. It's a moment of incredible intimacy between the Son and the Father. And even a casual observer, one who is not really good with math, can conclude that about 20% of it centers on Christ. But the other part is what we would call intercessory prayer. Whose example are we to follow in this? Well, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to learn things today that will be so helpful to us as we go forward. Is it okay for you to pray for yourself? I don't want to leave this part of the message without raising that question. Well, of course it is. The Bible says in the book of James, you do not have because you do not ask God. You ask and do not receive because you want to get what you're asking for to spend it on your own pleasures. There's how we can know whether we're praying in the Spirit or not, in one sense. We pray in the Spirit, we're going to be praying for things that God would give us, of course. He taught us in the disciples' prayer to ask for our daily bread, to ask for forgiveness, to ask for protection from the evil one. And we're going to see Jesus talking about some things there too as he prays for us. But we are to pray with selflessness, really. In Hebrews 7.25, this is a key verse, by the way. Think about it. It says about Jesus that Jesus is able to save us completely, or some translations say forever, if we draw near to God through Him because or since He lives to make intercession for us. Have you ever heard some personage in public life say, I live, and then fill in what that person lives for? Some of you are living for the cowboys today. I know that. And we have another weekend to live, don't we? Last weekend turned out pretty well. But... Jesus lives to make intercession for us. There's not a moment in time or eternity that Jesus is not praying for us, interceding for us. And we have the joy of coming to this passage of Scripture to watch 
him as he prays for his apostles. And by association, he prays for us too. So with that as introduction, we're going to look at two main things. What is the incentive for intercessory prayer? And then what are the ingredients of intercessory prayer Jesus style? Let's begin at verse 6 and look for an answer to the question as to what the incentive is. I'm going to go ahead and pull the trigger on that and remind you that the way this section of John, beginning with chapter 13 in the upper room, when Jesus first instituted the Lord's Supper, John, who was there, who wrote the Gospel of John, says this about Jesus. Having loved His men throughout, He loved them to the end. What motivated Jesus to do what He did in this prayer, in praying for the apostles, and in effect praying for us? His love for them. Now remember, He loved them to the end of Jesus' own life as a man before He was raised from the dead. And it was an awful end that occurred from the observer's perspective. It was hideous what happened to Jesus. But He loved them to the end. And where were they? None of them was there. John finally shows up accompanying Mary, the mother of Jesus, to the site of her son's demise on the cross. But otherwise, everybody else was gone. They weren't there, but He loved them to the end. Let's read verse 6 and following of John 17. I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. These men were men who were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, in effect, were co-heirs of Abraham in what God had promised to Abraham. Yet they had not come to know the Lord Jesus. We know that God reckoned Abraham righteous by what? By his faith. But evidently these men who had a semblance of faith had not yet crossed over from death to life spiritually because they had not trusted in Jesus. Yet they did. Eventually we know that. And the light came on gradually for them and finally burst into reality in their lives when Christ revealed himself to them in that same upper room that we're looking at here on the eve, the night that Christ was raised from the dead. And he says what he said elsewhere, I'm manifesting your name, Father, to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Everyone begins in the world. And who is the ruler of this world, by the way? Satan. And what are his traits? He is a liar. And he is a murderer. We saw this in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. But here as we look at this, we remember what Jesus says about you and me who know Christ. In John 6, 37, He says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And I won't go into a linguistic study of the grammar but suffice it to say that once you're in the hand of Jesus, you're there for keeps. 
Now, who gave you or me or the apostles to Jesus? None other than God the Father. And Jesus was so grateful for that. He loved being the repository where God put people whom He calls His sheep into His hand. They became members of His flock. Has someone whom you loved before given you a keepsake, something that you to this day treasure? As I was thinking about this part of John 17, I thought about some gifts my grandfather on my mother's side gave to me. I was the only grandchild for the first eight years almost of my life and only one of two in entirety. And Papa gave me a silver dollar one time. Do you know I still have that silver dollar? I've had it for over 65 years. I've never been tempted to spend it. It means something to me beyond what value there may be in. It may be worth $10 now, I don't know. But something else happened after my mother passed away. He had given her some very valuable coins. They were gold coins minted by the United States Treasury back in the day in the 19th century. And I have them in my possession, and I'll look at them every once in a while. And sometimes when I'm kind of getting low on money, I'll think, I wonder what these are worth, and I'll Google it and find out how much they're worth. I'm said, man, this I need to turn some of this in, cash it in. But the more I think about it, I think about my mother. It's a token of her love to me and her concern for me. And also I think about my grandfather. Jesus thought about his father. Do you know every time Jesus thought about the apostles, and the same could be true for you and me, he thinks about the Father's gifting us to him. And we're right to be emphasizing over and over again that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God lest any man should boast. Praise God for that. We cannot work our way into heaven. It's strictly by His grace. But we need to know that Jesus prizes us because the Father gave us to Him. Look at verse 6 again in the middle of the verse. It says, you, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now this is rather astonishing because we know even a cursory view of the Gospels would yield several possible illustrations of how these men were self-centered. Remember the mother of Zebedee's boys, James and John? Remember what she did? She came with boys in tow. And that's like a good Jewish mother, you know, bringing those boys. And she's looking out for them. And she says, when you come into your kingdom, would you give my boys places of prominence? One on the right and one on the left. And Jesus probably shook his head. And he said, you don't get it. I don't have the authority to do that. That's God the Father's bailiwick, not mine. But they were in collusion with her, weren't they? 
They wanted the places of honor. Well, we could give other illustrations from other apostles and probably many which are not recorded of the selfishness of these people. But Jesus makes an astonishing statement. They have kept your word. By the way, the word translated kept is a word which means that they kept it at some point, began to keep the word of the Lord, and then continued up until that point and would continue. Even though there would be times that they would lapse, the final outcome would be that they would keep on keeping that word. And aren't you glad they did? To whom humanly do we owe the New Testament? We owe it to the apostles. It was they whom Christ gave the responsibility to remember by the help of the Holy Spirit and record everything that Jesus had spoken to them. And we'll get back to that in just a moment. The word translated word is the word which means whenever it's used in the New Testament, there's more than one word translated by our term word, but this particular one has to do with the entirety of the New Testament and would also look back into the Old Testament. Now look at verse 7. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. Jesus was careful. That's not even an appropriate word. We don't have a word to capture. He was intent upon leaving the word of God with his men. This is the beginning of the church foundation. The Bible talks about how Christ is the chief cornerstone and there's no other foundation which can be laid for the church except Christ. But Paul also writes in the book of Ephesians that the foundation of the church with Jesus the chief cornerstone are the apostles and the prophets. There's a lot of debate about who the prophets are. Some people say it's the prophets in the Old Testament. I tend to lean in that direction, although there is validity in terms of their being the prophets of the New Testament. But the apostles, we know who they are, do we not? And they give us what we know the Scripture, or better put, the God, the Holy Spirit, gives the Scripture to us through them. This passage, by the way, is a great apologetic for the trustworthiness of Scripture. One of my mentors whom I never met, but I've read a lot of his work, his name was G. Campbell Morgan. He was an outstanding preacher in the late 19th and first half of the 20th century. And he said, I believe in apologetics by interpretation, not argumentation. And I agree with that fully. The Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Any human being who opens the Word of God and is eager to hear what God would say is going to have God speak to him or her through Scripture. God gives us His words and He gave them supernaturally, of course, to Jesus, but through Jesus. Recall that Jesus says in John 5.19 and elsewhere in the Gospel of John, I don't say anything except what I first hear the Father saying to me and to others. 
So the Word of God is in the Scripture. It's in the New Testament. Look again at verse 8. I'm going to repeat it just a little more. For the words which you gave me I've given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you did send me. We would miss something critically important here were we not careful. And that something is that Jesus is talking about where he originated from. Was he just some upstart prophet breaking 400 years of silence when he came on the scene? No. He is God. He came from God. He was sent by the Father. He is the ultimate apostle, if you will. The word apostle means one who is sent with a message. And so we see that Jesus is God. The Bible is very clear. He's not simply a man who became a God or God. He is God, period, exclamation point, and end of discussion. Verse 9 says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. Do you know Jesus does not pray for people who are not of his fold? That's sad. You might say, that's not fair. Well, what is fair? You want fair, every one of us would be wiped out. Do you know? That's what justice is because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what Scripture says. There are many other places we could consider that say the same thing, essentially. But God has shown grace to us who know Him. And He's given us the gift of eternal life. He has received us from the Father, and we have received eternal life through Him. And He talks about this group of people who are His in verse 9. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, Father, and all things that are mine are yours. And look at this, and yours are mine. That's the way when Jesus says, your stuff is my stuff, your things are my things, he's saying, I'm on a par with you, Father. We are equals. And when you study the Scripture carefully, you cannot conclude otherwise. And the last thing he says in verse 10 about these whom he loved, Jesus was motivated by His love for them. Is Jesus motivated by His love for you and me? Evidently, if we know Him, what's He doing for us at this very instant? He is praying for us. He is petitioning God the Father for us. And we are to glorify Him. Now let's look at verse 11 as we move away from the incentive, although that's still woven in the, the warp and woof of this passage of Scripture, we move and look at the ingredients of his prayer. Look at verse 11. And I'm no more in the world. Now he was at that moment, but he's leaving right away the next day. And yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Do you sense the intensity of Christ praying for these men whom He loved. Keep them in your name. Here's the first petition. Keep them in your name. Do you know what in Hebrew thought the name represented about a person? 
It represented the character of that person. Jesus is saying, Holy Father, keep them in your holy name. In other words, give them your character. They cannot drum it up. They can't work it up. Give it to them. And certainly that's what the Father did, didn't He? At Pentecost, what happened? The Holy Spirit came and He's called Holy Spirit for a purpose and He came and indwelled them. And He indwells us according to Romans chapter 8. Those who know Jesus are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So we have that capacity, not inherently, but given to us that we can have that kind of life. Keep them in your name. We will be characterized by the traits of Jesus. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. We're going to get to the, they will be one as you and I are next week, God willing, as we finish the 17th chapter. But we see, he says, keep them in your name. Guard them. Help them to be like you, Lord. Help them to be like me, Jesus would say. Say, look at verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in my name, your name rather, which you have given me. So Jesus had been the guardian of these men in that sense. The idea of keeping is the idea of watching carefully, protecting really is what the word means in its best rendering. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. We know who this is, Judas. And we read from Psalm 41, the ninth verse, talks about a friend of Jesus who took bread with Jesus, ended up betraying him. That's a prophecy which was held to be referring to the Messiah even back in that day. And certainly that's who he was. The idea of perdition it's a word that we don't use. I don't ever use it until I read the Bible, frankly. But what it conveys is something is totally destroyed. Now we know that the Bible says that people who do not know Christ and leave this world without Jesus, they go into everlasting destruction. And the word destruction there is this word that's translated perdition. So what we need to understand is if we don't know Jesus Christ, and you know whether you know Him or not, He will let you know that. And if you do not know Him, make a beeline to Him. Don't debate it any longer. Don't waste any more of the life that He has given to you to give your life to Him. What an exchange. An imperfect life for a perfect life. The life of Christ in you and me. Look at verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, that would be the apostles in association, us, who have believed what we have learned by the Spirit of God through the apostles, may have my joy made full in themselves. Have you noticed in this passage, which we know as the upper room discourse, the first three aspects of the fruit of the Spirit are dealt with? Love, joy, and peace. Peace in chapter 14, love in chapter 13. Now we see joy again, which is mentioned in chapter 16 and chapter 15. The joy of Jesus. A joy which is 
not dependent upon circumstances, something that can enable us to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, and here's why. How can we do it? It says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Well, how can that work, Lord? The Lord is near. Do you know the nearness of Jesus in your life? He's near. What a miracle. We need to put up all our melancholy, and I know that's much more easily said than done. I had a melancholy moment this morning that you don't want to hear about, but I just want to go on record. I have periodically these kind of real melancholy moments, sad moments, grieving moments, but when I turn my mind away from myself and my circumstances, what can I have when I focus on Jesus? Fix my eyes on Jesus. Well, there's nothing but joy there and peace and love. And it's something for all of us, not just a select group of people who are following Christ. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word. Jesus sounds like a broken record, doesn't he? But blessed broken record. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Look, Jesus says in effect in this passage of Scripture that his apostles are to be in the world. We're going to see that in just a moment, but not of the world. You know what that means. Christ has called us to be salt and light. Salt, if it's lost its flavor, is good for nothing, Jesus said, except to be trampled underfoot by men. The Apostle Paul says, season your speech with salt so that you will know how to answer the outsider. If we have a life that is characterized by the joy of Christ, the peace of Christ, the love of Christ, there will be people who will ask us why we have hope. We just need to submit to the Holy Spirit of God and He produces that fruit in us and it's demonstrated through us. The test of your faith in the Lord and mine is what comes out of us when we find ourselves in a position of being hated by the world. Difficult situation. 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Here's the second petition. To protect us from Satan. I don't have to say a lot about the devil, except he is a created being. He's inferior, and we can't even say how inferior he is to Jesus, because Jesus is not created. He's God from eternity, and Father is the same, and Holy Spirit is the same. What we know about Jesus is that Jesus wants to protect us. Has that been established today? We're in His hand. No one can take us out of His hand. The Father's hand is wrapped around His hand, so no one can take them out of the Father's hand. We got double care, haven't we? And that's something that's important to understand and remember. In 2 Thessalonians, you may want to jot this verse down and claim this promise and think about it. When you sense the aggression of the enemy, Satan and his minions, it's good to talk back to him with the Scripture because God has given us the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and how do we grow in faith? Faith comes from hearing 
in hearing from the Word of God. Exactly. And then we have been given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So we have been equipped to deal with this. And this is what one of those verses has helped me over the course of my life. In 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3 says, The Lord will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Praise the Lord for that. Verse 16, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I've already talked about this. And here's the, the third petition. And this really, in a way, if, if this is true for us, the other two are going to come into play almost automatically. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What does it mean to be sanctified? Set apart for God's use. Set apart. I was watching a movie that came out recently, and in the movie, one of the characters who is a wiser man than the person to whom he is speaking makes this statement to a young man who is pretty independent and unruly. And he says to them, to him rather, he said, I hope to spare you the, youth, the shame of uselessness. There's shame in uselessness. There's aimlessness in this world. In America, there's so much aimlessness. And in other parts of the world, there's so much aimlessness. But I can tell you for sure, if a man or a woman, boy or girl, knows Jesus Christ and is growing in Jesus Christ, I don't care how much education that person has or how little, how much money or how little money that person has, if that person is sanctified by the truth of God's Word, that person's life is useful. And Paul talks about this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. He says, if a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. Can you read? And if you can't read... Can you hear? We have access to the Scripture, the very Word of God, by which God sanctifies us through the Word of God. Look at verses 18 and 19. We need to pray for each other this way. I'm going to get to that, hopefully, if I have two or three minutes at the end. As thou dost, didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. You know the Lord sends us into the world on a vacation, on a mission trip that lasts one week. He sends us into the world every day. We live in the world. We don't have to be like the world. We're to make the world brighter. Let our light shine in such a way that they may see our good works which glorify our Father who in heaven. And we are salty in a good sense of bringing flavor and preservation to the world as the salt of the earth. Now lastly, verse 19, and for their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. For decades, I'm embarrassed to say this, for decades, I was so fixed on verse 17, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth, it overshadowed verse 19. But Jesus is the one speaking here and he says, for their sakes, for whose sake? The apostles whom he loved, 
I sanctify myself. I thought Jesus is perfect. I I thought He was perfect in His life. He was, and He would be if He came to live again. He won't ever do that again as a Savior of the world. He's already accomplished that purpose. But here's the point. Jesus in His humanity became like us in the sense He understood us in our struggle with sin. In fact, in second chapter of Hebrews, verse 18, the Bible says about Jesus Christ that He suffered in what He was tempted. He never sinned, but it, it pained Him deeply as He rubbed shoulders with the world. He saw the devastation of the devil in the word, world, what the devil does to people. But the good news is, He sanctified Himself. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Listen carefully. This applies to you and to me. We are the recipients of the salvation of God and the sanctification that's available in that, following Christ. How did Jesus sanctify Himself? Now listen. In His humanity, He did it the very same way you and I do. Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. When we look carefully at the teaching of Jesus in His own temptation, remember He was tempted by Satan to turn some rocks into bread. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He was vulnerable in His physical being for hunger to be met. But then he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's the word again. He quoted that. He didn't just make that up. He quoted it from the book of Deuteronomy. And if you look at the other two temptations and his response to Satan, he quoted. And guess where he quoted it from? The book of Deuteronomy. So it would stand to reason that Jesus was meditating on that part of the law when He was tempted by the devil. And because He knew the Word, He had the sword of the Spirit in His hand against the devil. If it's good for Jesus, it's good for you and me. Do you understand this? And it's ours if we know Jesus. We just have to expose ourselves to the truth. So, how are we to pray for each other? Remember, it's a sin not for me, for me not to pray for you. If you come to my mind, I'm to pray for you. That's my assumption. And a lot of people cross my mind. Some of you cross my mind quite frequently. And I pray for you. Well, we need to pray these three things, and we'll get to the fourth one next week. What is the first one? That the Father will keep them carefully guarding them and affirm them that they are His child. And there's plenty of evidence as to how He does that. Secondly, we're to pray for the protection of one another from the evil one. We need to pray for each other because we're living in a terrible world. And I'm not saying we're to hunker down. That's not the way. What does Jesus say about His apostles? He sent them out into the world. How in the world 
to overwork a word? Is the world going to come to know Jesus if we're always taking a defensive, hunkered down kind of position? We need to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The best weapon we have against the erosion of culture is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are responsible for the erosion of this country in its ethics because we are not men and women as we ought to be, men and women of the Word. And I mean we live it out by the power of the Holy Spirit. And not in a in-your-face kind of way, but in a loving, joyful, peaceful way that causes those people whom Christ has earmarked for His family along with the Father to come. Then the last thing, let's pray for our one another's sanctification. We do that, that means people are going to be in the Word and they're going to be in the world but not of the world. And their sphere, in their homes, in their community, in their schools, they're going to be people who are used as change agents. And His kingdom will come on earth to people like you and me as it is in heaven when we hallow His name putting Him in first place in our life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this great teaching of Jesus. So encouraging to me. Thank You that I had the assignment to prepare this talk. And You have convicted me again. Help us to be men and women who love You for who You are and our love will grow for You because of the intimacy You provide when we come before You in humility and Hear the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.